I think we all know the saying, like father, like son, right? You heard that before? It's a funny kind of saying because it can be used in a number of different ways. For example, <clears throat> most of you here know that I love westerns. I like to watch John Wayne as much as I can. In, uh, in his 1963 movie, McClintock, some of you know that movie, right? It's one you can watch over and over again for a number of reasons. In McClintock, uh, George Washington McClintock, John Wayne's character, is introduced to Matt Douglas Jr., played by the inimitable Jerry Van Dyke. And he says when he meets him, like father, like son, which seems like a complimentary greeting. A moment later, uh, Junior, who is a somewhat self-important uh, young college graduate, stumbles over himself, falls, demonstrating uh, in his clumsiness that fancy words and clothes don't make a man. To which McClinic snorts derisively, yep, like father, like son. He didn't have a good relationship with his dad. Like father, like son can be used either derisively or as a compliment, depending on the character of the father and the likeness of the child. In Ephesians 4.30, or 4.31 really, through 5.2, Paul is continuing the idea of living a life that fits, right? Living a life that fits who we are now as children of God. At the beginning of the chapter, he encourages us to walk worthy of our calling, to live a life that fits who you are in Christ rather than who you were previously in your natural self. Because in our natural selves, as he points out very explicitly in chapter 2, we were by nature children of wrath. That's who we were. We were dead in our sins. It is the natural state of every single person. Not just the villains on television or the, the, the Idi Amin's and, and you know, the, the terrible people, the Adolf Hitlers of the world. It's not just those who actively reject Christ. Probably no one sitting here is a Satan worshiper consciously. But all of us stand condemned already because of the sin we inherit in our nature. It is our nature to go our way instead of God's way. We were created, every one of us, in the image of God with God's purpose in mind. God's purpose for us was that we would live in intimate relationship with Him, bringing glory to Him and enjoying that relationship. But sin separates us from that relationship. Being dead in sin, we needed God to intervene. And so God reaches in, being perfectly just and holy. He cannot leave sin unpunished, or He would not be just and holy. We all recognize that intuitively until we talk ourselves out of it. You see on the playground, the, the teacher who's supervising the recess and sees injustice and bullying being done, and they say, well, it's okay, they didn't really mean to, they're doing their best, they can't really help it. And they give them a pass. Nobody thinks that's just, nobody thinks that's okay. 
until it's our kid. No, we want them to get that pass. Until it's our sin or some sin that we think is okay or tolerable and we want the holy and just judge to overlook or give a pass to that pet sin that we like so much. But God isn't like that. He has to judge sin in order to be who He is. And it is impossible for God not to be God. So God, who is just also to demonstrate that He is the justifier in His mercy, rather than just saying, I'm going to be unjust and overlook sin, He paid the penalty for our sin in Himself, putting on flesh in the person of the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus died in our place so that God, in His great mercy, could bring us from death to life. That's grace. It's only grace. It's not that we're so good and holy and smart and wise and we put out such great effort that we can earn our way to God and be better than someone else because certainly we don't deserve hell but hell is that separation from God that we all earn with our sin all of us God being rich in mercy being great in love chooses to bring us out so that we can receive Jesus Christ by faith. His grace, we take hold of it by faith, simply believing and putting our hope and trust in that truth. And when that happens, Paul's already written to us that we are adopted. We are put into full right standing with God, equal to a natural-born son. We're not born of God by nature. We're born of Adam by nature. and We get that sin nature with us. But as adopted children, we have the full standing of Jesus Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. When God looks on you as a believer, as a Christ follower, He has placed you into Christ, and therefore all He sees is His beloved Son. When you look in the mirror, you see yourself. And perhaps you see yourself through the lens of arrogance or the lens of humiliation and shame. In either way, in either case, your focus tends to be on yourself through a human flesh lens. But when God sees you, He sees Jesus. By faith in Christ, we're made His children. Paul's continuing to, to point out that we don't earn that, but because we have been made his children, it only makes sense that we would get rid of the old stuff, that old wardrobe of life that fits who we used to be, and put on our new clothes, the righteousness of Christ, that we would walk worthy of the calling we've received. Now here in this section, recognizing that we're chosen and adopted in Christ, the core reality of what he's telling us here 
is this. Children of God reflect the character of God because we live in the love of God. Children of God reflect the character of God because we live in the love of God. In other words, those who know the Father's love show the Father's love. All right. So Paul connects here our emulation of God's character to the foundation of our relationship to God in Christ. It's not trying to copy God, trying to imitate God so we can work up in ourselves some kind of righteousness. It's time for us to, to clean up our act. We want to do better. You know, I've kind of wandered in my foolish, uh, you know, my foolish selfishness and my youth, and, and now I've, I've grown, I've gotten a little wiser, and I want to put aside those foolish ways. So I'm going to muster up the willpower to imitate God so I can be like Him. Because I owe that to God, right? He's kept me alive so far, so I owe that to Him. Well, I just want to point out that's not the foundation that Paul's giving us here. In fact, that foundation, though partially true, you owe Him your very breath, is insufficient for salvation. It's also insufficient for actual emulation of who God is. Because our sin nature draws us away from God to worship at the throne of self. Children of God reflect the character of God because we live in the love of God. He's speaking specifically here, as we know, because he's writing this to the church. He's writing to believers in Ephesus and the surrounding area. That this... He's talking to children of God, to those who have been adopted, who have trusted Christ by faith and received the grace that God has given to us in Christ. So he, he connects that emulation to, uh, to the foundation of our relationship. We are God's children by faith in Christ, fully accepted because of His sacrifice for us. All of it in Christ. And because of this, we are dearly loved. God doesn't just tolerate you. He cherishes you. He dearly loves His children, and we are placed into full right standing as if we were Jesus Himself. Now, this passage that we're looking at today is sort of a bridge. This is why I mentioned earlier, I think, uh, I think a better break for this would be after verse 30 where Paul is saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. When we live in a way that doesn't fit who we are, it's not in keeping with the Holy Spirit who lives in us, having sealed us, sealed the inheritance that God has for us to us. And we live from the strength and power of the Holy Spirit within the believer. When we live like who we used to be, according to the flesh, rather than who we are now, according to the Spirit, it breaks God's heart. It grieves Him. So in 31, he gives sort of a summary of what he has said that leads into what he will say. And it's sort of a bridge between these two passages. And it reflects God's character as a statement on holiness and sin. Let me read a little bit more. So we read, starting with verse 31, 
Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He continues, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now that's where we're going next time around. You see that verses 3 and 4 are are in the negative. This is not what children of God are like. Verses 5 through 7 are a warning that such things, the people that live this way, cannot enter the kingdom, and that deceivers, false teachers, the world, will say it's okay and lead us into disobedience. We are to avoid them. So what is he saying in this passage? There are are three general areas we're going to look at here. Um, And and as we jump into this, I don't have a whole lot of clever uh, uh, phrases for you to use. So we just put this in kind of an outline form. And hopefully it just blesses your heart to no end. First off, what are we to do? Exterminate what belongs to the old nature. Exterminate what belongs to the old nature. Look at verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, there were a number of ways of saying this, and I was putting it together. I was trying to find a synonym for eliminate that might be useful and uh, came up with a number of just brilliant things. Absolutely brilliant. I was astonished at how brilliant they were and threw them all away. And when I saw Colossians 3, 5, you can turn the page, if you would, uh, go past the book of Philippians, which is short, into Colossians. When I saw Colossians 3, 5, I liked this imagery, this exterminate imagery. It's more than just removing. Let's back up to Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then... You've been raised with Christ. This is everything that Paul is saying in the first three chapters of Ephesians is sort of here. You've been raised with Christ. You're in Christ. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, right? We're going to deal with earthly things all around us. You've got to eat. You've got to pump your car full of gas, right? You're going to have to do all these things. Don't let that be your focus, right? Choose to set your mind, choose to take your thoughts captive and place your thoughts, dwell on, if you will, eternal, heavenly things, things above. 
Verse 3, for you died, in Christ is what he's saying, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This next one is the verse that caught my attention. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no, Jew, no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Put to death, he says, what belongs to who you were. Exterminate it. Take that old nature kind of stuff and kill it. Now, you died in Christ, so it died as well, but it's kind of trying to live this zombie life, this undead, coming back to eat your brains kind of thing. And that's what happens when we get caught up in the life controlled by the sinful nature. When I'm living for my flesh, the sin that is no longer who I am but still lives with me, it's been killed in Christ, and yet it still keeps trying to come back and eat my brain so that I do really stupid stuff that doesn't fit who I am anymore. It reminds me a little bit of weeds in my mom's ditch. Now, if you know anything about the weeds that grow in the ditch, if you mow them off, what are they going to do? They're going to come back, right? Because you haven't actually killed it. You just cut it back. We try to do that with our morality, with our lives. We want to try to live a righteous life. And so we try to cut it back. You know, I want to try to drink a little less, cuss a little less, maybe be a little bit nicer to people, you know, not be so obsessed with with money or whatever else. And we try to cut back or bind back our behaviors. That's the nature of religion. Religion binds back our behaviors. And there is some use to that restraint. Socially, society benefits from that kind of self-restraint. The problem is, just like the weeds in the ditch, it grows back. And if you know much about when you mow your lawn, it brings your lawn back healthier, right? Same thing happens with the sin, with the weeds. You cut it off, that root system's still big, right? So it comes back with a vengeance. Those weeds come back bigger than they were before. Same thing happens in our lives. I went by my mom's ditch, and my brother had gone out there and sprayed weed killer on the ditch, right? Instead of cutting it off, he killed it at the root, and it all turned brown and ugly because it was dead. But the problem with the dead weeds is you still have to remove that or that ugliness stays there. 
So now it's dead, but you've got to still go trim it off. You've got to get it out of there. This is what Paul's talking about in our lives in exterminating what belongs to the old nature. You died in Christ. Your sin was nailed to his cross. And if you are in Christ, that no longer defines you. You still struggle with it. It's still there like dead weeds in your ditch. And you got to put the effort out to remove that dead thing. Right? That's what he's saying. Kill it. Kill it at the root and then remove it. Go through the effort. Make the choice to take it out. <clears throat> Three things we'll see underneath this, this extermination concept. First, first part of verse 31, <clears throat> excuse me, of Ephesians 5. Flesh-driven emotion. Flesh-driven emotion. So notice, I'm sorry, in chapter 4, I said chapter 5. So in 4.31, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. If you're filling in the blanks in your notes on the app or in your uh, program, those are your three elements, bitterness, rage, and anger. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, who I think really captures this passage well, described the bitterness, rage, and anger as violent inward resentment. These things work together as violent inward resentment. So the bitterness has this idea of unforgiveness. I'm holding on to this, this problem, and I, I should be letting it go. I know that in Christ we would do this, but ugh, I just have that root of bitterness that's hanging on to me. Rage, I think you already have an image in your mind when you hear that. This is Sometimes it's what we call a righteous indignation. I'm so fired up about this thing. Maybe it's your sin that's got me fired up. Or that injustice I see over there. And it just, oh, it just gets to me. That anger that I hold on to. And I might justify it in my mind. You did wrong to me. I have every right to be angry. You might. This is why he said previously, and in your anger, you're going to get angry. Don't sin. Don't hold on to it. Don't let the sun go down on it. In other words, don't hang on to that anger and let it stick around. Get rid of it as quickly as you can. Get that issue dealt with, because if you don't, it gives the devil a foothold in your life. Flesh-driven emotion, specifically bitterness, rage, and anger. This is an internal thing. The bitterness, the rage, the anger, this is what's going on inside of me. I might not say anything. You might see a nice, happy smile on my face, but inside I'm storming. And the blood pressure goes up. And I lose sleep at night. And I get stressed. Because I'm just cooking inside. i got to get rid of that flesh-driven emotion. I have to put it to death. Secondly, we see flesh-driven expression. This belongs to the old nature. i got to kill the old nature. This flesh-driven expression, the first part I'm feeling inside. But notice what he says next. Get rid of 
not just all bitterness, rage, and anger, but get rid of brawling in the NIV and slander. If you have a different translation, it may say clamor there. Get rid of clamor. The heck is clamor, all right? I like that word clamor, so I'll put it in your blanks for you. Basically, the concept here is verbal brawling. He's not talking about going out and, and getting in a bar fight, right? That makes for great movies in the Westerns, but that's not good in real life. Don't do that. But that's not really what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is that verbal kind of brawling, expressing what I'm feeling inside in such a way that I'm just brutalizing those around me. Get rid of that. It doesn't belong. Again, Matthew Henry, <clears throat> he uh, describes this as intemperate speech. Intemperate speech, giving expression to that bitterness, rage, and anger that's inside of me. He also says to get rid of slander. So clamor, which is verbal brawling, and slander. Again, Henry describes this as all railing against such as we are angry with. Old Puritans have a way of saying things, don't they? All railing against such as we are angry with. So when I slander you in this context, it's because I'm angry and I want to see your reputation go down. I want others to know about you what I know about you, to see you as I see you. And so I say those things that are in my heart. That guy's such a dirtbag. Oh, you can't trust her. She'll stab you in the back. She's such a gossip. Did you know that she... Wait. We do this. We let the inner feelings work themselves out in abusive speech, intemperate speech, and slanderous railing against the ones who make us angry. And Paul's not differentiating here between whether that's justified or not. He's saying that kind of expression is driven by your flesh, by your old nature, by your selfish human urges, rather than by the Spirit of God. Exterminate that. Third, we need to exterminate flesh-driven volition. Flesh-driven volition. What is volition? Volition is the will. It's the, this is a desire issue. It's going beyond this, this idea of what I'm feeling inside or even what I'm saying. This, uh, to, to put it in, in Matthew Henry's words, I'm stealing a lot from Henry today because I really like the way he said this. As he was speaking of this volition, he says, This is the rooted anger which prompts men to plot harm against others. Dig that now. Rooted anger which prompts us to plot harm against others. How does Paul describe it? Okay, so we're going to get rid of the bitterness, the rage, the anger, the brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Malice is ill will. So our flesh-driven volition has to do with our will, our desire. When I hold malice towards someone, I have ill will toward them, I desire to see them go down. I desire to see my version of justice come to them. 
boy, I hope she gets fired. I hope that guy gets a ticket. I, I, man, I hope there's a cop up there. Sometimes, though, we probably wouldn't say it out loud in those darker corners of demonic influence. We think, man, I hope they have a wreck. Serves them right. We see harm come to someone who is, in our minds, wicked, and we think they got what they deserved. That's malice. That's ill will, and it is ill-suited to the child of God. It does not reflect the character of our Father. So we exterminate what belongs to the old nature. We exterminate flesh-driven emotion, bitterness, rage, and anger, flesh-driven expression, clamor, verbal brawling, or slander, and we exterminate flesh-driven volition, malice, also known as ill will. As we exterminate those things, we need to embrace or incorporate what belongs to the new nature. Incorporate what belongs to the new nature. We need to assimilate it. We need to take it on. The character of God is not reflected in flesh-driven things. But when we incorporate, when we embrace the mind of God, and we are led by the Spirit of God who dwells in us as believers, if you are in Christ, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is in you and does not leave. Whether you listen to Him is another story. We need to incorporate what belongs to the new nature. Again, we see three things in Paul's ordered writing here. I'm going to shift the order a little bit of the three as we look at verse 32. Verse 31 gives us the negative, what we need to exterminate. Verse 32 gives us the positive, what we need to incorporate. And the first thing that we see is going to be the second on our list. I'm going to start with the second thing, spirit-led emotion. You might notice the pattern here. Paul follows the same pattern in his writing that we're going to follow here. Spirit-led emotion. This is an internal, feelings-oriented thing. And we're talking about feeling compassionate. The Spirit-led emotion causes us to feel compassionate. This is a heart issue. It, uh, again, quoting Henry, it, it is being merciful, quickly moved to compassion. When I feel that, that sort of empathy that allows me to want to see mercy come to you rather than judgment. That kind of compassion that says, yeah, they did wrong, but man, I really want to see mercy. I want to see forgiveness. I want to get to that place. This is the inner working, that compassionate heart. That's part of our new nature. It's a reflection of God's character. Notice what he says, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to, to one another, forgiving each other, just as, in Christ, for, just as in Christ God forgave you. All God reaching out to you to forgive the unforgivable in you. And if God has forgiven the unforgivable in you, if he has given you grace that you could never earn, or it wouldn't be grace, that you absolutely in no way deserve, that ought to change our hearts. When we have been loved, we need to love as well. 
We need to reflect His character. So we do so by incorporating spirit-led emotion with a compassionate heart. We also do so by incorporating spirit-led expression. Okay, we move from the internal emotional to the external expressed emotion, that which is inside us and coming out. Be kind. Now, being kind is not quite the same as being nice. Being nice, we get along with everybody. You never say anything that's offensive. You, you know, you're never impolite. Uh, that, that's not what we're talking about with kindness. Kindness is a heart of love expressing itself in speech. In the way I talk to you, in the reason I say what I say, I'm doing it for your benefit. You may not like it. <laughs> Some might say it's cruel to be kind. But as you're, some of you got that, as you're dealing with this idea of compassion in your heart, when it's expressed in the way you deal with others, this is the kindness that Paul is talking about. Again, Henry, it's the principle of love in the heart expressed outwardly. The principle of love in the heart expressed outwardly. Outwardly, So we incorporate spirit-led emotion and spirit-led expression. Thirdly, we incorporate, you've probably already guessed it, spirit-led volition. Spirit-led volition. This is what he says. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgiving is a choice. It involves an act of the will. It's not a matter of, I suddenly feel better about this. You know, you, you ran over my dog and I suddenly feel better about it. No, that's not what we're talking about. It's letting you off my hook. It is letting go of a debt that I perceive as owed to me. You have done me wrong, therefore you're on the hook until you make it right. Forgiveness isn't waiting for them to make it right. Forgiveness is my choice to do what God did for me in Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust that God is just, and He's going to handle whatever justice needs to be taken care of. Lord, the Lord said to us to leave room for His justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. But God does it perfectly. I do it imperfectly, selfishly, stained by my sin. To live a Christ-like life, to walk just like Daddy, I need to incorporate spirit-led volition that causes me to choose forgiveness, even when that would not be my natural inclination. Exterminate what belongs to the old nature. Incorporate what belongs to the new nature. Notice this, we are also to emulate the character of the Father. Emulate the character of the Father. <clears throat> and again, Paul gives us three areas to look at here. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. After saying what he just said in this summary that moves us into this, this next section, he says, follow God's example, therefore, or if you have the previous NIV or another translation, it may say, be imitators of God. This, this rendering that we see in the NIV 2011 
follow God's example really captures what that being an imitator of God is all about. Think of it in terms of a parent-child relationship. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Emulate the character of the Father. Notice the, the foundation of this is that we are God's children. We are God's children. Therefore, because we are God's children, we follow his example. Like father, like son. Because He loves us, He perfectly loved us in Christ, therefore, He is worthy of emulation, and we love like He loves. Children of God reflect the character of God because we live in the love of God. When we recognize that in Christ, we are already, before doing anything good or bad, in Christ, we are dearly loved. We are fully, wholly accepted. Not because we're so worth it. But just like that newborn baby. Some of you can remember what it was like when your firstborn child came out. And even before you ever met that child. <laughs> and let's be honest, when they come out, it ain't pretty, right? You know, it's noisy, it's messy, it's painful. Ain't nothing good about any of that. And yet, we're overcome with love for this child. This is my child. When I first saw my, my firstborn son, and it's true with all of them, but there's something about that first time, I thought my chest was going to explode. And then this child that... I have loved for nine months in my wife's womb without ever having met him as a medical emergency, and I was overwhelmed. I didn't know how to control my emotions. But I never met that kid. Now, I'm pretty proud of him today. He's done a lot of good things and a whole lot of dumb things, just like his daddy. Because that's what humans do. But before he did one thing good or bad, he was my son, and I loved him. This is how God treats us. Chosen, adopted, made right by God because of what Christ did on the cross. And before you made one choice about how you're going to walk that out, before you blew it, before you told others about Jesus, before you got your entire life straightened out, let me know when that happens. He loved you. You're precious to Him. This is such a motivating factor. I will tell you that growing up, there were lots of times when I obeyed out of fear of my parents' wrath. Anybody else? Raise your hand if that was you. Because you knew what was coming if you didn't. When, when that's the only motivation, then when you think you can't get caught, you do dumb stuff, right? Because it doesn't matter anymore. The fear of that has been removed. But as I grew into that relationship, because I knew my parents loved me, 
because they loved me, I loved them in a way that I would not have been able to comprehend otherwise. And because I loved them, and I knew that I could rest in their love for me, even when I blew it, I wanted to please them. And with obvious exceptions in the teenage years that we all go through at times, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be like my daddy. This is the motivation for the child of God to become like daddy. This is powerful. As God's children follow his example, you are dearly loved. Walk in it. Our motivation is that we are God's children. We are dearly loved. Follow his example as children follow the Father. Know that you are dearly loved and walk in that love. Rest in it. Be his. Live in the way of love. Third, he gives us a perfect model. Love like Jesus. We emulate the character of the Father because we have a perfect model. Therefore, we love like Jesus. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Just as Jesus did, in the same manner in which Jesus loved us, sacrificially, he put our needs ahead of his needs. John, uh, Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Continually, over and over, the Son of God, who was on the throne of heaven, chose to debase himself to serve, to put the needs of others ahead of himself, even to the point of dying on the cross. If you would, turn the page to Philippians chapter 2. It's only a page or two for you. Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Paul again writing to a different church now. Therefore, he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped or clung to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance or form as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to death, even death on a cross, the humiliating death of the convicted criminal. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to, in order to fulfill His good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become, <clears throat> excuse me, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Your attitude should be like Christ the perfect model. We love like Him. We exterminate what belongs to the old nature. We incorporate what belongs to the new nature. We emulate the character of the Father. Children of God reflect the character of God because we live in the love of God. Turn, if you would, toward the back of your Bible to 1 John chapter... Oh, let's turn to chapter 4. As we live a life of love, as we walk in the way of love, reflecting the character of God in the way we love others, John writes this exhortation to the church. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God. We didn't. But that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He's given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Notice what He's said so far here. Okay, God is love. Love is, is a hallmark here. 
but we know that we belong to him because he has given us his spirit. Without his spirit, we cannot receive Christ. By his spirit, we receive Christ, and the spirit now lives in us. Therefore, we have been changed, and we are able to love as God loves. We are able to receive the full revelation of the mystery of God in Christ. We can't do that apart from Him. So it's not just a matter of, hey, loving people who have t- tend to have loving natures, they're obviously good Christian people. That's not His point. His point is, do you want to know that you're saved? You can tell by the way you choose to love others. When the Spirit lives in you, when Christ is your life, as Paul says it, in Colossians, it shows up because you reflect the love of God in how you deal with other people. He continues, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Right? This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, We are like Jesus. This is the point. This is everything he's saying in this uh, Ephesians point. Sound like Porky Pig there for a minute. So the whole point of what he's saying in this Ephesians passage is what he's saying here in 1 John. You want to have confidence that you belong to God? Then walk like him. Reflect the love of Christ, the character of Christ in the relationships that God gives you. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. He's speaking of our relationship to the Lord. He has loved us perfectly, and therefore, if we still fear His wrath, it means we haven't fully grown up in Him yet, right? The more we understand His love, the more we incorporate that, and we see this perfection of sacrifice for ourselves that Jesus made on the cross, then there's less room for us to fear God's wrath because we recognize more and more, better and better, that all the wrath that God had for our sin fell on Christ already. There's nothing left to fall on me when I'm in Christ. And so that fear dissipates. That does not mean that once you're in Christ, you're never going to fear again, you're never going to doubt again, you're never going to stumble and, and fall. That's not it at all. But you haven't reached that point of completion, of maturity yet. Notice this last paragraph. We love because He first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Children of God reflect the character of God because we live in the love of God. Those who know the Father's love show the Father's love. A quick word to fathers as we wrap this up. Because it's Father's Day, I want to make sure you get your little special nugget here. All right. 
fathers are in a very, very powerful position by God's design. And your role as a father is a lot like fire. It's powerful. And if you mess around with it, it can be utterly destructive. You are the reflection of God to your children, whether they are young or grown. How you treat their mother is their picture of God in the church. Let me say that again. How you treat their mother, whether you're married or divorced or never married, how you treat their mother is how your children will understand the picture of God in the church. How you treat them is their picture of God's love to His children. If you are a performance-based, demanding father who's never satisfied, that's the picture your children will have of God. If you're disengaged or distant or absent, that's the picture your children will have of God. If you're the good buddy, let's just all get along, hey, let's go have a catch, I know that you just robbed a bank, but it's okay because we're pals, right? Then that's the picture they will have of God. That's a distortion of who He is. How you treat them is their picture of God's love to His children. Also, your holiness, the way you live your life as set apart for God, is their picture of holiness. That's a lot of weight on who you are as a father. A quick word to children, which is all of us, every single one of us. Whatever your earthly father is or was like, he was human just like you and me. He was imperfect. And yet you are like him in many ways. Many of you might protest, I am nothing like my father. You don't know my father. I'm nothing like him. He probably said the same thing about his father. Yet one way or another, you have been shaped by him, whether in emulation or rejection. We become like our parents in so many ways. It's time to demonstrate grace to him. If your father blew it big time, give him grace. If you think your father was perfect, <laughs> then you're not allowing yourself to actually know your own father. Because there is no perfect father. We have a tendency in our society to, to venerate those who have died. When my father passed, it cut deep. And I held him as a hero my whole life. But if I were to pretend that he were perfect, I would be lying about him. Just like my children know that I'm not perfect. Remember that your heavenly father, however, is not altogether like your earthly father. He is perfectly just, perfectly loving, perfectly holy, in Christ, you are dearly, completely, and perfectly loved. You are His by His choice, not yours. You are able to receive this word today because in His mercy, He opened your heart to receive it. 
Now I challenge you to take it to heart and to let your character be shaped by following the example of your loving and holy Father. Children of God reflect the character of God because we live in the love of God. Today, may we know and reflect the reality of that father-child relationship with God in Christ as we reflect the reality of who Jesus is through the relationships God gives us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be like you. If we're honest, we recognize that we cannot in our flesh do that very thing. And Father, even with your Spirit in us, empowering us and making us more and more like Jesus every day in this progressive sanctification, we all still stumble and fall and struggle. Just as the Apostle Paul described himself in Romans 7, continuing to to do what he didn't want to do and not do what he knew he should, even while his own even while his own inner person longed to do your will, joyfully conformed with your will, he recognized that he was still fighting a battle with the habits of thinking, with the habits of the flesh that still lived with him. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ, and I pray that everyone hearing my voice today would celebrate and rejoice in that, and if they cannot because they do not know it, then, Father, I pray that you would stir their heart as only your spirit can, and no clever words from any preacher. Move in us today, Father. Make us fully, completely yours so that we can be like you. We pray this in the name of your Son, who demonstrated that perfect reflection of you and gave himself up for us. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.